Thank you, worship team. And just like I mentioned in my prayer, uh, for those of you that, I don't know how long you've been with us, but from the very beginning of this church, twin, twin, would you just raise your hand real quick there? If you don't know twin, that's twin right there. But in the very beginning of this church, when there were about 10 people that were a part of our church, twin did everything from the sound to playing the guitar, from leading worship, from being a part of our connect groups that we had. And then he met Anna, who was here from America and teaching and uh, spent a few years here, I think. And, and lo and behold, they fell in love, as is the way God intends things to happen. And they got married, and then Anna dragged him back to America. No, I'm just kidding. But they did go back to America, where Anna is from in New York. And every once in a while, they get a chance to come back and, and visit with us. And, and every time we see them, I, it takes me back to the very beginnings of even when I was here when Twin was already here establishing what we now call Alpha Omega International. So God bless you, and it's wonderful to have you here with us today. And also, as I mentioned before, uh, Rachel is, is back, at least for the summer break, back from California from going to school, and, and uh, she's sitting next to her sister, Steffi, and I, I can't tell the two apart anymore. They look exactly alike, especially with the masks on. So uh, that's how it goes. But Rachel, welcome back. It's good to have you here again. After the service today, when you get an opportunity, please say hello to Twin, to Anna, and give Rachel a big hug too, if she lets you. Uh, welcome her back for at least the summertime. Amen, Andre. Aren't you a glad father today? Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. All right, well, let's go into the scriptures. For this month of July, I'm going to be speaking three times this month, and each time I'm going to speak, it's going to be under this one theme. Because this theme runs through Romans chapter 6 and also into chapter 7. And so the theme from when we are preaching from Romans this month, the theme is united with Christ. And I can't put into words how wonderful that phrase is and how beautiful it is and how miraculous it is and how wonderful it is that we have been united with Christ. And I pray that today and next week and then the third time we look at this theme, you will see just how wonderful this truth is that we have been united with Jesus Christ. But as we look at this three times this month, united with Christ, we're going to consider three parts to that this month. Today we're going to look at an old man. Next week we're going to look at an old master. And then in the third time we come to this theme, we're going to look at an old marriage. All right, and then Paul's going to use those illustrations to show what it means that we are now united with Jesus. But as for today, we're calling this an old man. All right, so if you will turn to Romans chapter 6. And while you're turning to that, thank you for everybody who has prayed for me for my back pains. It was, it was bad for a couple of weeks. And then last week it hurt getting out of the car downstairs, walking up here, and then coming up here to preach. But I tell you the honest truth, once I started preaching, and I start moving, and I start getting loud, and my, my heat starts to rise a little bit, it almost cured the entire problem. Because from Sunday until now, my back feels great, and I can move, and so maybe I'm going to get back to normal with shouting a little bit more than I normally do. We'll see what happens. Try to keep it together. Romans chapter 6, an old man, we're looking at verses 1 to 11, 
And if you have it, please stand with me. We stand in honor because here are the very words of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or as some of your translations might say, God forbid. No. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So last week's text ended with that wonderful, wonderful verse that says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And what a glorious truth that is. No matter how dark, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil your past, the grace of God covers, the grace of God saves. What a wonderful God we have. But now Paul begins this new section with a question. Because it seems as though people were questioning Paul's teaching. Evidently, there were people that said, wait a minute, Paul. Okay, so we're saved by God's grace, and his grace has covered our sin. So what do you mean, Paul? We can just now keep now continuing in sin? Like, as long as we just keep sinning, don't worry. God's grace is going to cover our sin. So, Paul, what you're really saying is Christians can live however they want. Christians can continue living in sin. There doesn't have to be any change in their life. Just say, I believe in Jesus, be saved, and then continue on your old sinful life. People who think such things, if you ever meet a Christian who says, God saved me, and now I can go back to all my sinful nature because his grace is always going to forgive me, there's something wrong with that person. And I'll say that that person has no idea what the grace of God is. Because the grace of God doesn't just save us. It's by God's grace that he doesn't leave us in the condition that he found us. It's God's grace that changes us. In fact, I heard somebody just yesterday say, a grace that does not change you is a grace that has not saved you. The grace that has saved us now works in us to change our life. And so Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin 
that way God's grace may abound more and more and more? No, he says. God forbid. In the strongest terms possible, certainly not. And here's what Paul says about that. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Why would somebody want to keep on sinning to see God demonstrate more grace in their life? That makes no sense whatsoever. It's like the man who took a hammer and kept beating himself in the head with the hammer. And another man came and said, sir, why do you keep doing that? And the man responded, because it feels so good when I stop. That makes no sense whatsoever. It's like a husband and wife who love to fight because they like to be reconciled later. What? That makes no sense. Paul says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Do you remember last week, some of the things that we talked about in Romans chapter 5 was the way of Adam and the way of Jesus Christ. In Adam, that way is condemnation leading to death. The way of Christ is justification leading to life. And we talked about how when we're saved, the Holy Spirit takes us out of the way of Adam and puts us in the way of Christ. But imagine somebody comes along and says, okay, now I'm in the way of Jesus, but I still want to live like I was in Adam's way. Makes no sense. Or we said that there are two masters, either sin or Jesus. And even Jesus says no one can have two masters. You love one and you hate the other. But if a Christian comes and says, yes, Jesus is my master, but I still follow the master called sin, makes no sense whatsoever. Paul is not saying that, it is an, it, that is, uh, it's impossible for a Christian to sin. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is it is inconsistent for a Christian to sin. He says, we died to sin. You remember Ephesians chapter 2? We read it last week. Paul says, you were dead in sins. You were dead in your sin. But now, because of our union with Jesus Christ, we are dead to sin. And it doesn't mean that a lot of people say, well, picture it like a dead man. In the same way that if you walk up to a dead man and you kick him and you talk to him and you beg him, he won't listen to you because he's dead. And that's what Paul means. But that can't be what Paul means because then that would mean that we can't hear sin. We can't be tempted by sin. Sin cannot touch us. That's not true. And I can prove it to you. Just this past weekend, have you been tempted of anything in life? Have you been tempted at all to sin? Of course you have, because that's what sin does. But Paul wants to encourage you. Let there be no response to that temptation. Close the door to that temptation. Consider yourself dead. Your response to that temptation will be like a dead man who cannot even follow what somebody else is telling him to do. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do. Be dead to your sin. In fact, he's not saying be dead. He's saying you are dead to your sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, 
that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The Christian life is about dying to your old self and living to Jesus Christ. The wonderful thing about the Christian life, it's a supernatural life. Did you know that? Supernatural. To be born again, to be born from above, born of heaven, is a supernatural work of God. What's neat is in the natural life, the natural life is we have life and then we die. But in the supernatural life, we die and then we live. And that life is forevermore. And so Paul is going to bring us through the fact that we have died. Those who trust in Jesus, you have died. And Paul is going to speak in these three ways about death. First, he's going to show us a picture of that death that we died. Secondly, he's going to talk about the permanence of that death that we died. And then last, he's going to talk about the practice. Putting into practice the fact that we have died. Amen. So let's begin and see what Paul says about this topic. Number one, the picture of our death. Paul gives a wonderful illustration. Verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. This verse right here is the gospel. Paul says it all throughout the New Testament. The gospel is that Jesus, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. But now he's saying for all of us who trust in Jesus, we have been united with Christ in his death in his burial and in his resurrection, united with Christ. And the illustration is baptism, water baptism. You know, when the New Testament talks about baptism, the word means immersion. It means to dunk, to submerge, to take something and then to dip it, submerge it into a liquid. Baptism. It also means to form a union. So if someone comes into union with someone else, their former life is completely changed because of the union that they're now in. That's what baptism means. And in that regard, this is what the Roman soldiers in the days of Paul would do. They would gather their swords together before a battle. They would take a pot of blood and they would all dip their swords into the blood together, calling it a baptism. Why did they do that? What did it mean? It meant that every man before he was an individual man, caring about himself, worrying about himself, fighting for himself, protecting himself. But now through baptism, he is united with all of the men in his platoon, which means I am not my own. We are one. If someone attacks him, they attack me. If he needs to fight, I shall fight with him. I live for him. I die for him. We are united. That's what baptism is. And in the Bible, Jesus commands us all as Christians to be baptized. 
How many of you have ever been water baptized as a Christian? Yeah? Two of you? There's more than three. There's more than four. Okay, I'm sure a lot of you, right? Most of you. If you haven't, come and see me after service today, okay? This is something Jesus commands us to do. Why? What is baptism then? Why do we do baptism? Because it's a picture of our death, burial, and resurrection as a union with Christ. So when you were baptized, most likely, especially if you were baptized from Alpha Omega International, let me see if I can get an example. Ashley, I baptized you, right? So Ashley and I went into the pool in the back of my house, right? You know, every time since I've been in Indonesia, every time I go to somebody's house and they have a pool, I always think, ah, oh, that's a good place for a baptism. We baptize people all over the place in, in the city. Many people's homes we've been baptizing people in. Yanti, you have a ministry of baptizing people. Amen. So I took Ashley down into the water, up to our waist in that water. And Ashley gave her confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And then I bapt her in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when I said amen, I plunged her down into the water. Why? Because it's a symbol that Ashley, the old Ashley, is dead and buried. Don't worry, we don't leave them there because there's a resurrection. And she comes up to represent a brand new life, a life filled with Jesus Christ. Now for all of you that have been baptized, including Ashley, the work of union with Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection, that does not happen when you get baptized in water. It's just a picture of what has already happened the moment you trusted in Jesus. That death, burial, and resurrection happens the day a person gives their life to Jesus Christ and they're saved. But then Jesus wants you to preach that message, to show what he's done for you by being baptized and showing other people what has happened to you in reality. Actually, when you got baptized, did the water sparkle? Were the birds flying? Did you hear God speak from heaven, behold my beloved daughter? No. If you did, we need to talk. The magic doesn't happen. The miracle doesn't happen at the waters of baptism. The miracle has already taken place in the individual who's going to be baptized. But the baptism is a picture. I died. I was buried. And now the life that I live is full of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. That's the picture. And for those of you that have been baptized or maybe you're thinking about being baptized, I want you to remember this. Baptism, besides what it shows, besides that, remember it's a command by Jesus. You are to be baptized. There are two what we call ordinances of the church. Two commands that Jesus has given for us to follow and to practice. One of those is baptism. The other one is communion, of which we're going to partake of today. Communion says, Jesus died for my sin. Baptism says, I died to my sin. And so, when someone is baptized, what a wonderful way to begin your life by obeying your Master and Lord Jesus, who commands us to be baptized. Remember that. Number two, remember this. Although the miracle doesn't take place at baptism, it's already happened. Nevertheless, in many countries around the world today, where Christians are persecuted and killed 
in many countries around the world, those Christians are not persecuted because they go to church or because they sing songs or because they have a Bible or because they confess they believe in Jesus. No. They're persecuted the moment they're baptized because the community around them knows now they mean business. Now they're actually making the confession that they belong to Jesus Christ and they'll never be the same again. It's at baptism that persecution rises. Baptism is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. Paul says that we are to walk in newness of life. You know, just as Jesus, when he died and he rose again, do you know that even his life was new? There was something about Jesus that was new. Now, of course, he was perfect before his crucifixion. He's perfect after. He is holy before. He's holy after. He is God before, and he's God after. What changed about Jesus? Well, when you just read about his resurrection, he could be sitting with two disciples, and they don't even know it's him. Somehow he's able to transfigure. And not only that, but he broke bread in their presence, sitting at their table. And the moment he broke bread, he's gone. He didn't walk out, he was just gone. The disciples thought he was a ghost. And he said, I'm not a ghost, give me something to eat. And he ate in front of them because ghosts can't eat. And here he is eating in front of them. When they're huddled around together in a room where the door is shut and the windows are locked, all of a sudden, there's Jesus. It didn't matter that they were surrounded by four walls. It didn't matter the door was shut. The laws and the rules of the world had no more effect on his new resurrection life. He could walk through a wall. He could be from one city to the next in the blink of an eye. There was something brand new about Jesus. And the body that he had in the resurrection was a body fit for heaven. Do you know right now your bodies cannot go to heaven because they're still bodies of sin. But one day Jesus will change your body into a new resurrection body just like his. But Paul is saying that in the same way that Jesus had a newness about his brand new resurrection life, in the same way, we are not to be the man or the woman we used to be. Our walk should be different. Our talk should be different. And the ways of the world should have no more effect on us anymore because we live according to heaven's kingdom, not the world anymore. Newness of life. In the next verse he says, For we have been united together in the likeness of his death, and then certainly we, shall, uh, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And that phrase, united together, doesn't only mean putting two things together like this. It's actually a grafting word. Like when someone has a tree and wants to graft a branch into that already existing tree, and when you take a branch and you cut the bark of the existing tree and you, you, you put the branch inside and you tape it around, now the life of that tree begins to flow through that grafted branch and it produces fruit. That's what these words mean to be united together because God the Father has grafted you into the very life of Jesus so that now the life that you live is the life of Christ flowing in you. At the cross... The life of Jesus was given for us. But now as believers, 
the life of Jesus is given to us. He is the life within us. And now we can say, just like Paul did in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The picture of death. We have died, we were buried, and we were raised again. And I want you to notice the language there. It says that we were buried. We died. Is that talking about today or something that's already happened? It's already happened. You died. You were buried. And you were raised back to life. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that. But your feelings sometimes are not the same as what the facts of the scriptures are. God says, you died, you were buried, and you're raised to new life. Amen. Number two, we have the permanence of our death. It is permanent, the work that Jesus has done. Verse 6 and 7, knowing this. In other words, underline this. If you have a highlighter, highlight this. Knowing this, that our old man, watch the tense, was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. That old man was crucified. Who is that old man? Or who is that old woman? Who is that? Do you remember last week in chapter 5, we talked about the crooked nature? We talked about the word sin, offense, trespass. All those words mean that we are bent and we are crooked. We wander away. We deviate. We walk in opposite directions of the will of God. That was our sinful nature. That is the old man. That is the old woman. But Paul is now saying that that old person, what you used to be, that old nature, was crucified. Was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. Yes, that guy, that woman that you used to be, was crucified with Jesus. That man is dead. That woman is gone. Paul says that body of sin was done away with. What does that mean? What does it mean that God has done away with that old man in you or that old woman? Some say it means that he annihilated that old nature. Others say no, not quite. Because the old nature is still there somewhere. And you're reminded of it every time you're tempted to go back to doing the dumb things you used to do. Nevertheless, what it means is that Jesus has made the old man powerless. Powerless or paralyzed. In other words, your old nature no longer calls the shots in your life. Your old, na old nature is no longer in charge of you. No longer powerful over you. Jesus has rendered the old nature powerless, paralyzed. 
I heard a man yesterday say that when he was growing up as a kid, there was another older kid who used to always bully him, pick on him, throw him, throw him around and do a lot of bad things at school and things like that. And he remembered being so, so terrified of this older bully. Later in life, that same bully got into an accident and broke his neck and became paralyzed from the neck down. And this man that was talking about it said many, many years later when he saw this man in his wheelchair, unable to move, he just thought to himself, that man used to terrorize me, used to beat me up, used to pick on me, used to throw me around. He did whatever he wanted. But now, he no longer has power over me. He's paralyzed. That's a sad story, but that's what Jesus has done to your old man, to your old woman, paralyzed, powerless. We are no longer slaves of that old crooked nature. We'll talk more about that next week. No longer slaves of sin. Through death, we are freed from sin. Death is the great separator. It ends contracts, it ends covenants, it ends relationships, and death will end sin's mastery over you. And that's why Jesus has united with you in death, so that you die to the old nature and sin. You know what this means now? You know what this means as Christians? It means that when you go back to your old person, when you, for whatever reason, go back to doing what you used to do, it's like digging up a dead corpse and having fellowship with it. Who would ever do such a thing? And yet, how many Christians go back? Paul says, it's not to be so. You died. You died. Inconsistent to say, he freed me, and yet you keep going back to what you claim to be freed from. Verse 8 and 9, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Last week we read about that one man's righteous act. The righteous act that Jesus did for us, and that was the cross. The work Jesus accomplished is a permanent unchangeable victory over sin and death. Therefore, our state of being dead to our sin is a permanent, unchangeable state. Amen. As Paul would say, through the cross, he said, the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. It is done. It is finished. And Jesus did it all at the cross. We are united in his death and burial and resurrection. Have you ever looked back at what you used to be? You ever do that? I do that quite often. Maybe when I'm reading something in the Bible, spending time in prayer or, or something happens and it just, it brings my mind back to years ago. And I remember the sort of man I used to be. Not in the eyes of my friends or my parents or my wife, but in the eyes of God, I remember the kind of man I used to be. And when I think about all those things, the foolishness of my life, any of you here know what it's like to live like a fool? 
Amen? But I, when I remember those, it fills me with many emotions. Like, number one, I think to myself, I can't believe I used to do those things. I can't believe how dirty and sinful and wicked I was. I can't believe how much I was just rebelling against God. I can't believe that was me. But then new thoughts fill my mind that God has forgiven me of all my sin. And God has changed me. And he's continuing to change me. And then I'm filled with such thanks. And I'm filled with worship toward the Lord. Because where sin abounded in my life, grace abounded much, much more. When we think about what we used to be, we can sing, God, you are so good. You are faithful. You are merciful to me. But you know, when you do think of those things, don't linger too long in those memories. Because you might be tempted to still feel guilty about what you used to be. And God doesn't want you to feel that. You know why? Because God says that person is dead. I buried that person. They're gone. The life you now live is in Christ. And in Christ, as Paul has said, we have peace with God. We have relationship. We have access to God. No longer. And so it's good every once in a while to look back and to think, oh, how much God has loved me. But don't linger too long. Instead, let it serve as a reminder, I'm never going back. Amen? I'm never, never going back. Praise God. Last, number three, we come to the practice of death. Like Paul says in the Bible, he says, I die daily. It's something that he had to renew in his life every single day to remember this death that Jesus has brought. Dead to that old man, I die daily. A daily reminder that I die that he may live in me. So how do we practice this death? Well, Paul says in verse, I think the thing is stuck there. In verse, six, uh, verse 10 and 11, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also, here it is, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus' death at the cross is enough for all to come and to be saved. Amen. And he does not have to die again and again and again every time a sinner comes to Jesus. No, the death that he died, he died once for all. It is final. And now he lives forevermore to the glory of God the Father. In the book of Hebrews, it says that after Jesus purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. And today, Jesus is to the Father what sunbeams are to the sun. He is the glory and the radiance of God. And now Paul says, likewise, you also. And here's this word again. Reckon. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. To me, this right here, this is why so many Christians struggle with the old nature. This is why so many Christians 
tend to fall back into sins that God has already delivered them from. Why do we do that? What happens? Why do we so easily slip and fall back? It's because we don't come to an understanding of this verse right here. Paul says that we are to reckon ourselves dead. In other words, we already know all these things to be true. How many times has Paul already said it? Know this. Know this. Know this. Okay, we know it. Jesus died. I'm forgiven through him. I died with him. I was buried. I raised again back to life. And I have everlasting life. I know these things. But it's not enough just to know. It's not enough to say, yes, I believe it. Amen, I believe it. Paul says you must reckon these things to be true. So what does that mean? What is it to reckon? Reckon is a word that Paul uses all over the book of Romans. Like when he says that God has imputed righteousness to you. Or he has credited you with righteousness. It's a bookkeeping term. To reckon means to compute or to calculate or to credit an account. That's what it means to reckon. Let me put it in an illustration. A lot of you here are business owners. Eka, you're a business owner. Many of you are business owners. Sindhu. Now imagine this. Imagine tomorrow is payday. You all know what payday is like at your own places. Gerald, this is for you. Tomorrow is payday. And all your employees are going to come to your bookkeeper and they're going to request their paycheck. But you just got together with the bookkeeper and the bookkeeper opened up the ledger to find out there's $1,000. We're doing this in US dollars today. There's $1,000 in your account. Well, we need 20000 to pay all our workers. Uh-oh, we don't have enough money. So tomorrow morning, early in the morning, Gerald is going to run to the bank. He's going to request a line of credit. The bank is going to approve it. And all of a sudden, he's given $20,000. And then the bank transfer, transfers that $20,000 right to the payroll account. Gerald calls the bookkeeper, I got good news. We got the money. So pay everybody who comes to you today. Okay, so there's the bookkeeper. And here comes employee number one. Can I have my check today? And the bookkeeper says, oh, I'm sorry. Look, the ledger, we only have $1,000. I'm sorry, there's no money. And the second employee comes, and the third, and the fourth, and the tenth, and the twentieth. I'm sorry, look at the ledger. There's no money. Gerald gets to the office later in the day to find out there's a protest in front of the building. And everybody's angry, and he says to the bookkeeper, what's wrong, didn't you pay everybody? And the bookkeeper says, no, Mr. Gerald, look at the ledger, we only have $1,000. What did the bookkeeper fail to do because there's plenty of money there everything they need is already there what did the bookkeeper not do the bookkeeper did not reckon the account which would mean add 20,000 in the ledger and because the bookkeeper didn't reckon the bookkeeper didn't know there was enough to pay in the same way when you are tempted to go back to what you used to do, to go back to those sins the Lord has freed you from, when you're tempted, you must know without a doubt that in you is the power of the life of Jesus Christ. And he rules and he reigns. 
and you have everything you need to say, no, I will not do this thing. I am marching forward and I will not dishonor my Lord and Master by falling back again. God has given you everything you need, but you will fail if you don't reckon these things to be true. Let me give you another example because this is something, it's very sad, but it's very true. Of all the people I have met, and not just men, but also women, of the ones that I have met over the last 10 or 15 years, and they have converted to Christianity somewhere in that time. Do you know one of the sins that was so prevalent in their life before that once again becomes prevalent even in their Christian life? is pornography. Now as I just said that word right now, some of you may have started feeling beads of sweat coming down your head. Listen to me. Pornography is a plague and it destroys. It corrupts the mind. It destroys relationships. It destroys character. It destroys society. Pornography has made its way into all aspects of life today. I remember when I was a boy, in order to avoid pornography, all I had to do was make sure I don't walk down the magazine aisle in the grocery store. I loved magazines, especially the remote control car magazines, but I knew just above were the Playboy and the Hustler magazines. So what am I going to do? All I got to do is not walk down the aisle. Done. What about today? What about today? Those little gadgets that you're holding in your hand right now, that little technology in your hand, you can access anything you want, anytime you want, and you can do it all for free. And I believe that there are many, many Christians, both men and women, who are prisoners of pornography today. It is a destroyer. So with that said, when a Christian is on their phone and all of a sudden they feel the temptation to look at what they ought not to be looking at. And in that time, I know what so many do. They say things like, oh, this is just too much for me. This is just too powerful of a temptation for me. I just can't help it. I'm just a poor victim and I don't know what to do. Well, I, maybe if I can do this and nobody finds out about it, and I know that when I do it and it's done, oh, God's grace will abound, and I know he'll forgive me. Many Christians say that. But you know what? Enough. Enough. Gentlemen, enough. Women, enough. You must reckon yourselves dead to pornography, dead to what you used to do. You must reckon yourselves victorious already over sin. Jesus Christ is in us. His life and power, the Spirit of God works in us. And we have all that we need to turn from sin and to Jesus Christ. You're not a victim. You're not a slave. You're not poor and miserable. You are a child of God. Look at me. Enough is enough. Do not go back to that world of pornography. If that's you today, God has broken the chains. You must reckon it to be so. Amen.
Amen? Amen. No more. No more. Whatever God has delivered you from, no more. Do not go back. All you'll find is destruction. All you'll find is hurt and pain, suffering and misery. God has given you everything you need. The Bible says that there's no temptation that God will allow you to walk through that he doesn't give you a way of escape. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who is my strength. Brothers and sisters, we are united with Jesus Christ. We died, we were buried, and were raised a brand new life. And you, he has made alive who were dead in your trespasses. Reckon this to be so. Amen? Glory to God.